Welcome back to another week in the world of Sasta. You are listening to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Godfather of Sass with Sasta, Jason Lemkin or at Jason LK on Twitter and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC on H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now, this week on the show is a special one as we feature a company who's experienced a meteoric rise to the top of the world of Sass in recent years. It is, of course, Gainsight, the company that's practically created the category of customer success and has revolutionised business processes in doing so. And joining me today from Gainsight, we have the CEO himself, Nick Mater. As CEO, Nick has played a pivotal role in the rise of Gainsight and has led the raising of tens of millions of VC dollars from the likes of Lightspeed, Battery Ventures and Bessemer Venture Partners. Prior to Gainsight, Nick was the founder of Live Office, which was sold to Symantec for a whopping nine-figure sum. I also have to direct you to YouTube for the next part, and I'm going to tell you to type in four key words. ABBA, Nick Mater, Aaron Levy and Bat Street Boys and you'll get a brilliant carpool. Promise you, whenever I'm down, that's where I go to cheer up. But now it's time to head into the show. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Nick Mater, CEO at Gainsight. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Nick, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to have you. Really excited about you doing this, and thanks for including me. Now, I'd love to start today by hearing a little about you and how you came to be the founder and CEO at Gainsight. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm not the founder of Gainsight, just to kind of clarify. Our company was founded by two guys, Jim Eberlin and Sridhar Pedaneni. Uh, Sridhar's our head of engineering. Jim was our business founder. And um, they had this idea you know, about, about five years ago now when they came up with the idea for um, solving the needs of recurring revenue businesses where it's not just about acquiring new customers, but about maximizing success and getting the most revenue from your existing clients. So they started the company. It was originally called JBARA Software, and it was, it was actually in St. Louis, Missouri, so it wasn't really on the radar for most Silicon Valley companies. They were connected to Battery Ventures, who did our Series A. And I had just, prior to Gainsight, run my own company, a company called Live Office, which was a SaaS company in a different category. And I, I sold that company to Symantec, um, took some time off, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And it just so happened that the biggest challenge I had at live office day to day wasn't getting new customers or marketing, wasn't, you know, finance. It was actually like managing our existing base, you know, which which customers were at risk of churning, which ones were ready to buy more, which ones were referenceable. And I was always thinking as we were running this last company that, gosh, like there's just no systems for this. We were managing it all in spreadsheets. And then I... I sold the company, took some time off, and then I got a call from the battery folks, and they said, oh, I wanted to introduce this company, JBARA Software, now Gainsight. And and I'd never heard of JBARA Gainsight, but I heard the pitch, and I would just fell in love right away. I mean, literally, the company was 17 employees. Um, product had just kind of come to market. It was very, very early, but the idea was something I just completely fell in love with, and that was uh, February 2013, so a little more than three years ago. Uh, and I'm intrigued that you said about uh, the current tools that you have when you were with your own company. So, so what were they? Was it literally just spreadsheets? Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny because this is I, I actually have the spreadsheet that we used in my last company, and in my investor deck, in my customer pitch, and the conference presentations, I put up that spreadsheet. And spreadsheet is nothing more than a li- a, the rows are customers. The columns are different information about them, like, you know, the revenue that they have or um, when their contract is up for renewal. And then there's a color coding kind of red, yellow, green, the red, the risky customers, the yellow, the ones that are doing okay, the green, the ones that are doing well. And um, I put that up and every single person that sees it that works in our profession says, I've got one of those too, right? Because effectively, if you don't have a system and processes and data, you just have to rely on your own subjective judgment. And so, yeah, we, 
I, I joke that our version of Gainsight at my last company live office uh, was very, very sophisticated. It was Microsoft Excel, and it was a weekly meeting to review the Microsoft Excel. And, and that, that was basically all we had. And you can imagine that there's basically two problems with that. Number one is that color coding is really subjective, right? So, you know, that whoever color coded that, they may think it's green, but it might not really be, right? And then number two, how do you make sure that the company is aligned to make the actions happen to make that color customer that's red really turn to green. What do you what do you do about that? And so, um, yeah, the pitch really resonated with me, and I I joined. I'm intrigued. How did you determine that true color then to assign a client? Yeah, so I mean, the, again, so our our mission is that we think in general companies need to rethink the way they look at their customers. So historically, and I, I often tell this story that my my dad was actually a um, uh, a software executive and a hardware executive at a company called Digital Equipment, which was a big company in the '70s. And then he was CEO of some 80s software company, 1980s software companies. And growing up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I, I vividly remember him telling me that if you go into business, you either want to be in the product organization, building the technology, or you want to be in sales, selling the product. Because once you sold the customer, your, your job's kind of over, right? Because now they're, they're stuck with whatever you have. And so the old model for companies was build products and sell them. And everything after the sale really didn't matter. We think in new companies and new business models, because your customer pays you over time and kind of has a lot of power, you need to make sure after that first sale that you're proactively driving that customer to get the right value. So we think it's not just about red, yellow, green. It's, a, it's about actually understanding all the dimensions of a relationship from their, how they're using your product or service to like what's their experience with your support team to what's their experience with your marketing, measuring all the different signals, color coding all of those. And so our system kind of does that. But more important than all that, driving the right actions in your company to get that customer the most value possible. Because in the new world, that's on you as the vendor. In the old world, getting value is on the customer, right? They paid for it. They put all their money up front. It's up to them. In the new world, the, 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 the onus is on the vendor to drive that value. What do you think has caused that shift? Is it the proliferation of tools available, which means that they've got all the choice in the world to switch between? You, you're on the right thread. So if I kind of generalize that one step further, it's, it's pure economics 101. So the basic idea is that as uh, the barriers to entry in various markets are lowered, there's more choices, right? And there's more alternatives. And customers, they don't have a religion to the vendor that they use, right? Whether it's software or hardware services, they just want the right outcome for their business. In the modern world, there's so many choices for every single thing from like marketing software to HR software to where you run your servers or computing to like even how you do your payroll, right? Take outside of the technology world. There's just so much choice, which is great for customers and they're not locked in. So the customers, it's like a new, brand new day for them, right? They're like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Like every vendor is accountable to me. I used to have to be accountable to them. It's it's switched, right? There's more choice. And because of that now, every vendor is kind of almost like lowering the barrier. It's a little bit of a, a race to the bottom. You know, one vendor says, okay, you don't have to pay all up front for this. You, you pay per year. Then the next vendor says, actually, you can just pay per month. And then the third vendor says, oh, actually, you know, you just pay for what you use. And like the best example of this is Amazon Web Services, right? So you know, the old world, you buy servers for some big server company and whether or not you turn those servers on, you've paid for them, right? Then one step removed from that was things like VMware, where you can kind of like slice and dice servers. Then the next step removed was companies like Rackspace, where you could kind of rent a server for a month or a year. But, you know, whether you use that server or not, you pay for that time that you rented it. And now it's Amazon where it's like, 
look, if you use that server for one, one minute, you're paying for that one minute. If you don't use it the rest of the month, you're not paying. And so that whole idea that the customer's choosing what they do and only paying for what they use, that puts the onus on the vendor. And talking about kind of the lowering cost to the customer, is that not probably one of the reasons why Peace Teal states the, the de- and denigrates competition? And actually, in the long run, is this not bad because there's only so low we can go? Uh, it's a great question. It's funny, Harry, because, you know, I sit here both as somebody witnessing all of this and articulating it like you are, and then somebody in it myself with my own business. Peter T, I, Zero to One and Peter Teal is 100% right. The only way to build a great business is to have something that in a legal and natural way looks more like a monopoly. Not that it's a monopoly in the legal sense of the word, but where you really are doing something truly unique that, that doesn't have a lot of competition. But I think the physics of it are the such that in general, in most categories, things are trending towards more competition. So it's a little bit of like, you know, what the reality is versus what you'd like. For all of our businesses, we should strive to have more differentiation, more customer kind of connection so that they stay with us. But the physics are the opposite. It's very similar to the reality that I would love to be able to dunk a basketball, but gravity just keeps me pulled pretty close to the ground. So I can't. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of that, you know, that I could say, well, it'd be nice to be able to dunk a basketball, but gravity exists. And the gravity in the business world is this trend towards competition and commoditization. And I'm intrigued then at how you view the competitive market then of customer success. We spoke about monopolies there. To what extent would you say Gainsight has a monopoly over the customer success market? Yeah, so of course, nobody, you know, I don't think anyone would, would ever want to or you know, say that they have a monopoly, but I'd say that, <laughs> I'd say that the thing that's, that is a little bit unique about what we've done is um, that we approach this problem not first as a software tool, but actually as a community and a job category. And so what we said was, look, uh, you know, if, if this thing's all going to happen, right, you need a whole bunch of things to happen first. You need companies to buy into the need for customer success. They have to buy into everything I just talked about, competition, lowering barriers to entry, et cetera. Then they've got to buy into creating a job function. They've got to hire a leader. They've got to hire a team. They've got to build an operations function, kind of like sales ops, but for customer success. That's all not about software. And so we bet super heavy early on on the community. And we said, look, this is not about tools. It's about the community. And it's like any business process change. You know, it starts with the people. Then it's a pro. Then it's a strategy. Then it's the process, and then it's a technology, right? And so, because of that, we do this big conference every year called Pulse. We just had it last week. We had thirty-two hundred people there. We have an online university that's taught a thousand people customer success. We wrote a book on customer success that came out through Wiley Publishing, become very, very popular. So there's these things that we've done, I think, that have allowed us to become associated with the category. We don't own the category. The category is really about all the people in it. But we've sort of been the the flag bearer of this movement. And that's, I think, created an unnatural and, and sort of unique advantage for us in two ways. Number one, I think awareness. So a lot of people know about us. Number two, though, more important than that, insight. I think as a software company, at the end of the day, what do you do? You you take knowledge in the world and you embody it in repeatable technology. And, and we have a level of insight that I think nobody else has, especially about how people do this at scale. And, you know, because of that, like a third of publicly traded SaaS companies use Gainsight. Five out of the 10 largest software companies in the world use that. So we have a level of scale and um, reach that's become pretty significant. I'm intrigued. What were the biggest challenges to getting people to buy into it in the early days? 
Yeah, well, the biggest challenge was like like I was alluding to before, getting people to believe in the idea of customer success, not just as a buzzword, but a real strategy, getting them to hire people, create a function, empower that function. It's all this very heavy lifting, right? Like I mean, significant work. That was number one. Then number two, I think on the technology side is, you know, we're we're definitely like in the world of building the aircraft while flying it. And maybe, maybe even further on the analogy, building the aircraft flying it, drawing the map and building the GPS system at the same time. So you can imagine you're creating a, you're, you're part of creating a profession. So how do you figure out what tools they need? It's very iterative, right? Cause you don't, it's not like marketing where there's been around for a while and you can sort of ask a whole bunch of people and there's a lot of knowledge. So figuring out the tools that are needed, the functionality, the product management challenge, figuring out the deployment model, how it gets integrated, um, particularly because our stuff integrates with a lot of internal systems. So getting a standardized way, and actually we learned over time, customers want to be guided, not not to have it just be whatever they want. They want to really have us lead because we learned so much. Uh, taking authority to sell, tell people, look, this is how you should do it. And so now we actually have gotten a lot, a lot of kudos for, we have this whole thing, um, you know, how Gainsight does stuff, you know, how we do it internally has become a very powerful marketing tool. And um, we even have our own instance of Gainsight. We call it Gainsight on Gainsight, the version we use. Um, we, the, the cheesy acronym internally is Gong, Gong, Gainsight on Gainsight, so Gong. And, and we have these webinars about how Gainsight does things, for, you know, how Gainsight handles executive turnover at our customers, how Gainsight handles onboarding, et cetera. And that's become a really, really powerful place. So basically the long version, the short version is if you're building the aircraft and flying it and navigating at the same time, it, kind of sequencing all of that is very, very challenging. Um, but once you start making progress, you build a little bit of a flywheel. And, and so, so talk to me, Nick. Say I am a startup founder, um, so and I've got a metaphorical startup. How much should I spend on customer success? How much does this vary for stage and sector? And is there a way I can measure a return on my investment in it? For sure. So if you're an early stage startup, I mean, I think the thing you have to think about is what do you want to get out of it? And I found a lot of founders in early stage companies give a very broad remit to customer success. Customer success in the early days is not about renewal or retention because you probably don't have that many customers, right? So it's not much to renew or retain. But a, a big thing is actually insight and learning, right? So you have these people that are talking to your customers on a regular basis, really get to know them in detail, drive adoption, get feedback back to product. That's insanely valuable. Is it not also valuable for brand advocacy? If you really look after them, they will be the absolute brand advocates for you. Absolutely. And so that's what we find is a lot of you know, people in the early days are massively investing. A friend of mine run, run, runs a company, a venture back company funded by Kleiner. And, you know, he's like fourth employee, fourth hire was a customer success person. You know, I see people that make their third hire CSM. So it's coming in early, almost throwing out the economic ratio early on because it doesn't how much revenue that CSM is managing is a pretty academic question when you don't have much revenue to begin with. So forget about the ratio. You need a few people early on talking to your customers on a regular basis, getting really deep with them, turning them into advocates. Over time, then, that'll turn into some kind of a ratio. You know, Jason Lemkin wrote the blog post about $2 million of CSM. And over time, people kind of converge to that and even get beyond it. But in the early days, you know, people are massively investing in it. Um, and that might mean the CSM might literally be managing, you know, $500,000 of, of recurring revenue. But it's much more important that they're actually driving advocacy and learning from those clients. Mm-hmm. And, and I'd love to dive into a quick fire round called the 60 Second Sastin out. Sound good? Yeah, that's great. So ACV is everything you've said before. Expand. What do you mean? 
Absolutely. So I, when I talk to an entrepreneur or founder and they ask me, you know, what uh, advice about their business, the first question I ask is what's your um, what's your target ACV per customer? How much does your typical customer spend? Because I think it changes everything. It changes the entire strategy of the company. If you're a business that can get a million dollars out of a customer or hundred thousand dollars out of a customer, honestly, your whole sales strategy, everything you do is going to be very very high touch. You need very experienced salespeople. You need a very consultative approach. You probably need a professional services organization. You're probably going to need to burn a decent amount of money early on because you probably need to build a big product to justify that high ticket price. And if your ASP is very low, you know, you probably don't need a lot of people. You want it to be mostly online. I think there's a bit of a danger zone in between where your ASP is not high enough to have a high touch approach and not low enough to be really automated online. And that's kind of where there's a dead zone for a lot of companies. So I think that that ACV per client is probably the biggest question to ask. And then being a specialized CEO, right or wrong, where do you stand? Uh, Absolutely wrong. Um, So there's a lot of CEOs in the early days that said, um, you know, I'm a sales-oriented CEO. I'm a product-oriented CEO. I was just talking to my friend, Tinzo, the CEO of Zora, and we're talking about how as a CEO now, everything touches everything. You know, you, uh, we did a a carpool karaoke video that I think you've seen, Harry. Is this the ABBA? Aaron Levy from Box, we sang ABBA. It was fun. And, you know, people might say that's a marketing activity. And it was. It certainly drove leads, right? But it also was a customer success activity. I got outreaches from our existing clients that felt more connected to our company, probably increased their chance of renewing. It's crazy to say, but that video probably helped. It connected us to our employees. It connected us to an engineering team, right? Everything you do in your company touches everything else. So you cannot be a sales-oriented CEO. You can't be a product-oriented CEO. You can't be just a customer success-oriented CEO. You have to be actually good at all the disciplines and care about all of them. And the companies that are great are able to keep all of those pieces moving together in harmony. The ones that eventually peter out are the ones that are just about sales or just about product, and they eventually don't build a great business. And I have to say, sorry, the link for that will be in the show notes because that is an absolute winner of a video. Um, but um, on again, off again, hiring strategy in sales. What do you think? Yeah, so a lot of companies, I think in general, um, uh, kind of go through bursts of hiring and then they slow down. And I think that that's a bad idea in general because you know what you want to do is always have a great pipeline of candidates in all your jobs so that you feel like you can drive high performance of the business. When you have that person that's a really nice person, but not like sort of living up to what the job expectations are. If you don't have a pipeline, you end up keeping them around longer. And this really kills you in sales, where in sales, you know, you've had the, the hardest thing in the world is a mediocre sales trip, a nice person that just isn't really delivering, but they're not doing zero. So it's not obvious you should fire them. And it's but they're not doing as much as a great rep. And that's kind of taking up a seat from a great person. So that's philosophy behind always hiring is not to always grow your team. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to grow your team. But always hire because it's unlikely that everyone on your team is going to be a superstar all the time. And you want to always have that comfort that if you have somebody that's not not really killing it at their job, there's somebody out there that could. And then you could actually really drive the right performance in your business. I spoke to a CEO the other day who said he doesn't want all 18 players and that that just creates too much of of a competitive environment. Do you agree with that thesis? Yeah, well, it's funny because I did write a blog post, don't, you know, the the myth of A players, because I think that's the wrong way to think about it. It's not about that the person is just a quote unquote A player and a superstar in every dimension. It's that for this role, they're the right person. Um, And so I think that, I don't know that CEO that you're alluding to, but my my logic was 
that a player, first of all, is a very generic and highly susceptible to bias concept, right? Like, you know, I, I feel like a player becomes an excuse for hiring people like that look like us, right? Like as CEOs, that's very wrong and changes kind of really messes up company cultures. Um, and I think it also doesn't put enough onus on management because a lot of jo- the job of management is to get that greatness out of people. But, you know, tying it back to what I said about sales, I think that that regardless, you want to have top level performance. That's very different from A players. And sales is great because it's so measurable, right? The truth is you want sales reps that are achieving, right? Whether or not they're quote unquote A players is an academic question, but whether they're hitting their quota is very, very measurable. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And then final, final quick fire question. What are current SaaS companies getting wrong with customer success? Yeah. So number one, they think it's just about churn reduction. Um, customer success Turn reduction is just the beginning of the story. It's about upsell, expansion, and, and most importantly, it's about advocacy and getting your customers to be your best salespeople. The best companies do that. Number two, they hire the wrong leader. They've got somebody that they promoted internally that maybe is passionate about the customers and the product, but is not operationally focused. And customer success becomes very operational over time because there's a lot of customers if you're successful. Number two, so they're not operationally focused. Number three, they put it under another exec. They say, oh, this is going to be the part-time responsibility of marketing or sales. That doesn't work. Number four, they make it all about people and heroics versus process. People go a long way, but the thing that goes the longest way is a repeatable process. And number five, they think about it as just the CSM team's responsibility when in reality that customer success team is the quarterback, is the flashlight into the issues, but you need the whole company to rally around it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and then moving away from the quick fire, I want to discuss the hiring process of a customer success officer. So yes. what does that look like to you in a perfect world? And are there any ways to test this candidate for the operational focus that you just suggested? Absolutely. So we have a lot of experience in this area. You know, you can imagine just because what we do, since we're connected to so many customer success leaders and so many companies, one of the most popular questions I get is, where do I find a great customer success leader? Or if I'm a customer success leader, what's a good company to go work for? So we're often this sort of informal matchmaker. I've seen it work. I've seen it not work. And it's a lot like... um, I think new jobs, like, for example, online marketing in 1999, you know, there weren't any online marketing people in 1999. So every person was pretty new. And so what I've seen is that a couple of kind of interesting like learnings. Number one, previous experience matters, but because the job is pretty different and new, it doesn't always matter. And some of the best customer success leaders haven't done it before, but are very customer oriented, very process oriented, or great leaders, or very strategic. And I'll call out my own, Allison Pickens, our head of customer success, you know, kind of worked. She was at Bain Capital, BCG, you know, Stanford Business School, super smart person, had never done this, but is super process oriented, very high energy, very creative. And she's become a role model in the community and she runs our, our team, which is a big, big team. And so I think that don't get too enamored that they have to have had the exact title because a lot of people actually just are relabeling their job customer success. And I think that's a, does a disservice to the concept. And um, I think the other thing is that you pr- may have fits and starts. It's a lot like hiring for other roles where you have to be open to the idea that you may not get it right the first time. And I think it's really important to have a good person. So if you feel like you hired somebody and they're not perfect, you know, it's it's time to cut the cord and get somebody who's great at the job. Are you a higher fast, fire fast fan? Yeah, I mean, so I, we, we, it's funny because we have to balance our company value, we, golden rule, which is treat people the way we'd want to be treated with this concept. Now, the way we reconcile it is that when in an executive role, if you have the wrong person, 
everyone is suffering, your customers, your employees, all those people that work for them, right? And so you want to do it empathetically. But yes, I think in an executive role, if you're the CEO and you're keeping an executive around that's not doing the job, you are absolutely failing at your job. And you are not only failing, you're failing your team and your customers. So you need to like kind of emotionally weigh how bad of a job you're doing when you have an executive that's not up to the, the task. Um, so I think executives get paid a lot of money, including CEOs. So we have a lot of responsibility to be great. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and I want to finish then. We discussed the rise today and the evolution of customer success over time. And I want to discuss now the next five to 10 years, the landscape ahead for customer success. So what does the future hold? How will the tools develop? And, and do you think customer expectations will, will increase uh, sharply? Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, of course, you're talking to the chief Kool-Aid drinkers and Kool-Aid makers and customer success. So I'm going to give you our answer, but understand that it's a little bit biased. Yeah, you're not you going know, to say, no, it's going to go, Harry. It's a fad. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's been great. It's been great while it lasted. Um, so, you know, I think that um, the way we look at it is if you just look at most business relationships, more and more of the lifetime value of the customer comes after that initial sale, right? In the old world, the customer says, here's $100 million. I'll buy everything you have. And, you know, that value comes up front, right? In the new world, the customer says, I'm going to try you out for a month and we'll see how it goes, right? And so because of that, more and more of the sale happens after the sale. You know, the first sale is just the first sale and it's not the only sale. Because of that, we talk a lot internally that customer success in the future, and you really play this out, is the new version of sales, Because sales is no longer about a PowerPoint and a demo. It's actually about delivering value. And we think that that's actually really great for customers and sort of the inevitable path. I talked to a CEO recently who runs a vertical software company, and it was a decent-sized company. And it's funny because I was talking about customer success and his company. They've been around for a while. And he said, you know what, Nick? If I could play it all over again, I would have zero salespeople and all CSMs because I realize all of my revenue really comes from my customers. Um, and so I think sales in the future is going to be driven off of value and customer success, not off of these sales pitches. And, and that's going to take a while to play out. Sales is still very hard and important. You know, It's very hard to get a customer to, to get started. But as contracts become much less binding in long term, more of that friction will come in after the sale and the sale process itself will become less friction. And an example of that, it's funny, like one of our uh, categories we do a lot of business in is advertising. So outside of software, a lot of the advertising ad tech companies use us. And they, they actually are kind of like surprised at all this messaging in the software world. They're like, wait, so your customers were paying you up front, regardless of whether they got value. In the ad tech world, like for a long time, it's been like, look, that next click is dependent on how that the previous click did. You know, I'm not going to pay for that next click if the last click didn't work, if it didn't give me the buyer I want. So in ad tech, it's been for a while all about performance. And so I think in customers now, their expectation is the vendor is owning that, is proactive, is driving customer success. And so I think that's just the new version of sales, the way we look at it. Well, Nick, it's been absolutely fantastic to hear your journey with Gainsight. And I'm so grateful to you for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely wonderful. Yeah, great. You're a great interviewer. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Please hang up and try again. 
What a fantastic interview with Nick and such a brilliant start to Gainsight Week. Really was fantastic to hear the evolution and development of customer success. And we're so looking forward to bringing you Friday's episode with Anthony Canada at Gainsight. Also, if you'd like more information from Sasta, then head over to the website. That's on Sasta, S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can find a whole host of incredible SaaS resources and podcast episodes. And if you'd like to see more of me, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two B or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Thank you so much, as always, for your continued support. It really does mean so much, and we look very forward to seeing you on Friday with our follow-on with Gainsight.